take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean, and this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Be sure to check us out online on our Facebook page and Instagram at Couples Synergy or our website, couplesynergy.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couples Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for nearly 20 years. You know, every day we get to hear intimate details about a couple's celebrations, disappointments, and everyday challenges. We've often wished these stories were shared because we know we are more similar than different. And so we've created not only an avenue where you can hear about people's intimate lives, but an atmosphere where people come over to our home pub, pour a drink, and share their stories. This is a very special episode today. It is the day before Valentine's Day that this episode has come out. Mm Mm-hmm. Jean, we are in Aruba right now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So all of you listening to us. We are having our cocktails on the beach right yes, now. Yes, because this is our Valentine's Day is our 22nd wedding anniversary. Yep. So we are not braving the cold in Chicago right now, <laughs> but we do feel it important to talk about our relationship. You know, a little trivia about our anniversary. We brought our son... Alec on our honeymoon. Yes, we did. It was a family moon. It was a family moon because we felt it was important to start our family off because Alec was already part of it. And then we've done a honeymoon every year since then. Right. So we celebrate every year after that. So we're doing something a little different for this episode here. We are putting together a whole bunch of people that are very special in our lives mm-hmm. who have questions about our relationship. Right. Right. Because one of the things that we talk about with all of our couples is that we, we, we can't preach it. We can't teach it unless we live it. Right. And so today to start off all of these, this amalgamation of questions and interviews, right. That we're going to have. We're in the hot seat. We are in the hot seat (laughs) and we have our good friends here, Calvin and Veronica. They are actually here in Jaxie's pub to grill us. With questions. Welcome, Calvin and Veronica. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here with you guys. Thank you. Thank you, guys. We're very excited to be here. We are totally excited because we grill people on a daily basis. And so it's our turn, right? Yeah, I don't know if grill is a good one. I don't know. It's just kind of... I, I think it's we're it's putting really, ourselves on the hot seat. Yeah, but I think it's really beautiful and a treasure to pull someone's story out of them mm-hmm. that gets recorded and can be passed down t- for generations. I think it's a beautiful thing. You know, I, I think just kind of to just a thought that I had right now, and that is a lot of people who seek out marriage counseling or relationship coaching. A lot of times they don't know anything about the person that's coaching them or guiding them, right? They don't know about their relationship. They don't know about their history and, you know, what things that they've learned, you know, about their relationship or about marriage and love. And we think it's really important to, to be able to role model that, right? 
And you know, on, on a previous episode, you talked about our couple synergy as marriage mentorship. Mm-hmm. And the difference is you don't have to have a problem to do better in your relationship. No, no, It's no. like having a personal trainer. Yeah. We, we actually had a client liken it to taking your car to the mechanic, right? That you can sit there and wait until your car breaks down, even though all the lights on the dashboard are going off. Or you can actually maintain your car, right? Yeah. And then it's, you're going to ensure the fact that it's going to work. So let's, let's turn it over to uh, Calvin and Veronica here and let's see what kind of questions they got for us about our relationship. First of all, I don't know if the, the audience, I, I hope you can appreciate how authentic Gene and Ray really are. I mean, I've known them for a very long time and they are inspirational to me as far as role modeling a relation, a true relationship, not the, a movie Hollywood fairytale version, but the good, the bad and the ugly and the wonderful. And I think you're not calling through. me ugly, are you? Well, Gene is beautiful. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But, uh, you know, honestly, I, I hope the, the audience can appreciate just how authentic these two individuals are. I mean, like, I can't speak highly enough of them. So, and with that being said, you guys do so well as far as bringing the truth into being in a relationship. So for you guys, we can, we can start out with how did you guys meet? What was the attraction between the two of you initially? So we have two different stories about that. All right. Because Gene doesn't remember the initial time that we met. (laughs) (laughs) But the first time that we met that I remember was I was interviewing for a position at a community mental health center. All right. And so the position was a, like a job counselor, job coach. And I remember walking in with my, you know, soon to be boss. And she was introducing me to people. This is before the actual interview, right? So I'm, I'm actually in like the, the lobby area and I see Jean walking down the hall and I see her, she's got her, she, at that time she wore this like jean jacket type of (laughs) outfit. And, and I was like, Oh, Oh, she's cute. Wow. And then she came up and then I was introduced to her and then I went into my interview and that was my first impression of her just kind of seeing her. And I was very taken aback Physically, she just had that presence. She just, energetically, right? right? Just not just physically, but energetically. There was just this something about her that preceded her as she entered a room. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, I had an office partner who was gay. And we were both interested. <laughs> I, I had already gotten the job at this point, right? And and actually, and we used to talk about you. And I had an office right across the hall from you, mm-hmm. too, right? And I remember this is a, a maybe a month after I met you, and we were my car had broken down, and it was a snowstorm, and I was sitting in the parking lot. My car would. Come back to life after a little bit. It was a Geo Metro. Yeah, three cylinder. Three cylinder car. Yeah. And this was stripped down. It was like all steel <laughs> on the inside. There was no, no like accoutrements at all no. in this car at all. No. And I was actually really proud of that car because I sold my Jeep Wrangler, which was probably an 
irresponsible purchase because I had a child in order to go to college so I could afford to go to college because I bought this $8,000 car that got like 50 miles to the gallon, which was awesome. So we were sitting in my car waiting for it to unflood or whatever was going on. And we were having a really nice conversation. And I think you even offered to give me a ride home, but I would not accept it. I, I might have walked home that night. You walked home? Yeah, I home? probably did. Yeah. It was like in the middle of the winter. Well, you know, I like my hiking. It's very Gene-esque. (laughs) (laughs) And we would stay late after work and talk, and we became friends. And I remember at Christmas, at the Christmas party, I thought for sure something would happen, like you'd make your move or something. So I was hired in September. Yep. Right. So now we're talking about It's December. December, What's our year here we're talking about? 1996. So this is December 1996, and you left to go on a date. Allegedly. No, not allegedly. (laughs) And then I remember, wow, this is really interesting. We would have a conversation about how you were going to manage Valentine's Day because you were dating four different people. You know, it was really difficult to <laughs> manage the time. And well, think this about that because, because I'm and this actually is an important part of our story because I hadn't really brought men into my child's life. I was very like, I, I hadn't dated in a long time. Didn't want to. I always thought I was, I had a poor judgment of someone in a relationship. So I kind of, took that off the table for myself. And so I really thought he was just a friend and it had to have been after Valentine's day. I I was just a friend at that time Yeah, because, you know, in my head, I'm like, Oh my gosh, what she's got a child. I mean, there's just, I'm 30. I had Alec is 10. Right. And you're 24. Never encountered that before in my life. I mean, I had Mm -hmm. feelings, but at the same time, you know, my logic is like, uh, this is something totally different. So he put a, a little note in my mailbox at work that said, when can I check out your cool fish tank? And anyone that knows me knows I'm a serious fish tank person. I've uh, had a that's, fish. that's an understatement. <laughs> I've fish tank my entire <laughs> life. So I let him come over. And Alec was there and I didn't think about it any different than inviting anyone over. And another thing about me is I had a ton of those oil lamps and I think I had my place lit with oil lamps and candles or I did at some point I turned them all on because that's how I like to like just decompress and hang out. I may, I may have given you the wrong idea. That's not suggestive at all. (laughs) Right. You turn off all the lights and then you have all these like oil lamps going on <laughs> all over the room. Except for the child. But yeah, I can see that. <laughs> you know, the child was, was asleep, he was right? He put him to bed already. And yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then very shockingly to me, you leaned over and, and kissed me like the Spider-Man thing. Like I was upside down. Like I was laying on the floor. That's not suggestive yeah. either. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just never left. True. <laughs> well, except for the times we broke up. <laughs> Normally, that's what happens in a couple, right? You drop your downs. And I think that's a very cool, cool uh, story to start that. So from that, how did you guys progress? Essentially, 
now you have this whole thing. What happened to the four girlfriends? What happened to the, <laughs> the idea of, you know, this, this thing that you wouldn't even consider. And yet this model of a new relationship, a mother with a child and a coworker. I mean, there's so many things that <laughs> yeah. are kind of like red flags in the, in the beginning, as far as a standard quote unquote checklist of what to see if look for in a partner. Yeah. We didn't hit any of the checks on that. That's what normal I'm saying. Checklist. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, this is kind of like no man's land, right? This is not the formula that I grew up knowing, right? You go, you graduate high school with great, you know, grades, you go on to college, you get, you know, your degree, then you go on to graduate school, then you meet a partner and you get married, you you are married sing like without kids for a while, and then you have children, and then you get a house with a white picket fence and a three-car garage, right? Maybe a dog. Okay, so I mean, like there was this formula that society puts forth and I had that in my head that this is what I'm supposed to do and our relationship completely destroyed that formula for me and I had to it was like up and down and everything I had to rectify that within myself because I had these feelings but at the same time my head was telling me that this is not what you're supposed to do right supposed to quotes air quotes here and so we were kind of like, I mean, there were times like we broke up and then we kind of got back together. And why did you break up? Well, we broke up because yeah, I was, I was trying to do this. I, I was trying to figure this thing out and I was, you know, going out on the weekends, still doing the whole twenties life. And at the same time, spending a lot of time with her. And now it's like, pseudo family yeah. life right off the bat right off the bat right well right off the bat she's got a kid exactly and exactly. you can't just pretend that you're just casually dating right and so it was such a just a dichotomy of two different worlds that yeah. i was in i mean the stakes go up you know exponentially when you're bringing a child into the into the mix because now it's all of a sudden it's there's there's no real consideration for a casual relationship i mean absolutely right. right i mean you're going to like i don't know like pumpkin fests and stuff you know you're i mean you're not the kid at the pumpkin fest anymore you're the adult right yeah right and there were times where you know you had to work or something and i would stay with with alec and you know we would just we would spend time together and it's not like you're babysitting Right. But at the same time, it's just this, it's surreal. It was just a very weird kind of world that we were in. You know, I think for me, if we talk about this formula, kind of got shattered for me because I grew up Catholic. I grew up believing that you should be a virgin until you're married and obey your husband and that whole formula. And I got pregnant and I, carried a lot of pain and shame about that and didn't think I was really worthy or deserving of a relationship. In fact, my dad always told me he'd never walk me down the aisle. That'd be very, very hurtful mm -hmm. coming from your dad. Yeah. So I think I didn't have any more 
ideas, except that I should take care of myself and my child. And when you went, uh, when you met Ray, did you think that this beautiful relationship was going to come about? Absolutely not. (laughs) Did you think at the time maybe it was just a thing, just having a part, a friendship relationship instead of actually having a partner who actually loves you and actually finds you worthy? Like you mentioned, you felt that you felt, especially because of what your dad said, you didn't feel worthy of yourself. But did you ever imagine that Ray was going to be the person that he was going to make you feel fulfilled in life and worthy? You know, I I made a commitment to myself about three years before I met Ray that I was going to be that person, that I was going to become the person I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, that I was going to figure out how to be whole and, and healthy. I had every single relationship I had been in, I had been cheated on. It was toxic. It was never safe. And it was never anything that what I know now about relationships was even a commitment on their part. And so I remember thinking, you know, I had bought a condo I was living in. And I remember thinking, you know, I would go to talk to my dad and my sisters for those like deep, intimate conversations about life. And I had a cat for affection and my son and I had some beer drinking buddies. And I knew my needs were getting fulfilled in lots of places. So I didn't have an emptiness or, or, uh, you know, I love the story, The Missing Piece Meets the Big O by Shel Silverstein. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a missing piece anymore. And so I would always say that I was going to spend the rest of my life alone. And my dad hated me saying that. And so I said, well, it would take a hell of a guy to make me change my mind. You know, and that's kind of, you know, be careful what you wish for, right? Here comes Ray. <laughs> and I really, I was really in a great place in my life at that time when, when he came into my life. And so I was, it, it, it was, I'd healed so much on my own. And that was, I think the shocking thing to me was we both had some pretty painful pasts mm-hmm. and all of our past relationships were fairly, fairly unhealthy and somehow this is why synergy is such an important word for us because we just were so much better together. And I, I know that one thing that I did different with Ray that I never did with anyone else is I only spoke my truth. And that was more important to me than the relationship. And it still is today. One thing for me that was really important was that I always sought out validation in my past relationships. Like I looked to the person that I was dating you know, to validate me, to hear me, to, you know, give me some type of, you know, recognition. And right off the bat, what that does is it creates a power differential, right? It, it puts the other person in a position of being an authority, that they have the power to be able to judge you and tell you whether you are, you know, right or wrong. Okay. And that's something that I grew up with. And so it was very, easy for me to just superimpose that on anyone I was in a relationship with. The thing that was very different in our relationship from the beginning with Jean was that anytime I tried to project that onto her, she would just put it right back onto me. Nobody that knows me knows I do that. No, <laughs> not at all. But it was just, it, it was truth. You know, yeah. the fact mm-hmm. is that no one has the authority to tell you that you are valid, right? Right. Or that you matter in this world. You're the one that has to figure that out for yourself. And so it was a very just eye opening experience. You know, one of the things that was important 
to me was that I was always told no in my life, you know, growing up. It's like, I want to do this. I want to experience this. I want to just, you know, live life. And it was like, no, 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 you can't. Why not? Because I said so. And in our relationship, no, the word no didn't exist. So it was like, you want to go experience this? All right, let's figure it out. Let's try to make that happen. And it was a very freeing experience for me right from the beginning. Yeah. You know, I just want to add to this part of the story in case we don't get to it. On January 8th, 1998, which is my dad's birthday, I wrote in his birthday card, will you walk me down the aisle? Check yes or no. (laughs) (laughs) And he said yes. And our wedding was February 14th. So this is only a month before our wedding. So I didn't know until then. And then at our wedding, he gave a speech and he said, if there's anything I've done to hurt you, I'm sorry. And if there's anything you've done, forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That is so awesome. So I went through a big healing process with my dad over the years as well. I, I think even more pivotal about that is the fact that two years later, he passed away. His funeral was on our second wedding anniversary. Right. Same day. Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great segue into discussing the idea that you marry into a family. We don't exist in a vacuum. Our relationships ultimately are hinged around family, good or bad, by choice or by not. Those are factors. And I would be very curious to hear both your sides, you know, as far as Ray and knowing we have similar cultural values and this idea of what, you know, this pathway should be as far as the ideal quote unquote mate and vice versa, you know, taking into account somebody who was from a different culture, regime, how does that wrap into, you know, your considerations as far as being a wife slash mother? How does that affect Alec? Vice versa. So whoever wants to take that one. That is a a very complex question. And I don't think you met most of my siblings until the day before we got married. I I had not. I had met two of your siblings. (laughs) Which two? You met more than Maybe three. Okay. So I met Sarah, Joe, and Eddie. You, I think you met Jeff and Judy too. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Maybe Dan or not Dan. Not Maybe Eddie. Okay. So I had met some, maybe majority of, of your siblings, but not all of them together until the day before our wedding. And ju- just for listeners out there, the, the cultural background that we come from is very, very different, vastly different. I was raised in Chicago suburbia. Okay. And in we both were pretty much all white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I was the only person growing up in, in Catholic school that was, you know, had, you know, a different ethnic background than everybody else. So for me, I was very kind of isolated just from the, from the start. All right. And you were raised in, in a similar type of neighborhood and Catholic background, but your family was like the stereotypical white suburban family at that time, would you say? Yeah, I went to a Catholic 
grade school as well as you did. And every person I knew was white, middle class, married. There was zero diversity. In large families. Large families, very chauvinistic male dominated families. And I was first generation American. You know, my father's from Iran. My mother's from the Philippines. They both met. She was a nurse. He was a, an intern at the time at, at uh, Cook County Hospital. They met on the same unit and, you know, the, start, struck up a relationship. And so, you know, for me being the firstborn, they were really just trying to figure things out in this new society that they're not, and they both, both were not used to. Yeah, both of them, English is their second language, so they didn't share a common language. Right, right. On top of that, you're the only male. I'm the only male. Right. I have so two, there's two younger sisters. Right. And then expectations that were put on me Correct. from the old culture, right, that may or may not actually work in this new society, which, you know, I had I had run into, you know, over the years. Like you weren't allowed to play baseball or football. Because they had they don't know about yeah. that sport. Mm-hmm. They were never exposed to that sport. But soccer, yeah. I mean, they all knew about that, right? It was a struggle for me growing up just trying to integrate with the culture and my parents not really knowing anything about it. So, you know, the two of us coming together was, it was kind of like coming from two different worlds. Absolutely. Not right. like. It was. It was. <laughs> right. It was two different worlds. And I, I don't know how it worked. I think maybe my experience is going to show that a little bit more. Because I don't think it was so much about cultures as it was about family values. In my family, it was if you didn't. So we had this big round table with a lazy Susan in the middle, one of those spinner things. And my mom would put all the food in the middle and then you'd pray. And there would be at least 11 people around this table, if not more, because there was always other friends over. And if your friend was over, you would say to them, Okay, when we get done praying, start grabbing because if you don't grab, you're not going to eat. You know, if you're polite or you're used to being passed around, that like my family was survival, and that's just a an overview of the culture that I grew up in. And so you would protect yourself as much as you can and get what you could. We would get food by the truckload, like Jewel does. And my parents, they, we'd get cases of stuff and they had this cabinet or this, uh, whole closet that they had a lock on it. Well, of course we knew how to use a screwdriver and they'd leave and we'd unscrew it and all the food would be gone. It was supposed to be for a month, like in a week, all the good stuff anyways. <laughs> so I meet Ray's family and I'm informed that on New Year's Eve, we are all required to spend that with his family. And I had a child at 20. I never went out and partied and I was thinking, wow, (laughs) for the rest of my life, I'm going to be hanging out with your family on New Year's Eve. And we would be summoned to dinners on Sundays and expected to be at certain things. And that was hard for me because I didn't have that. And I really appreciate that over the years that your parents and your sisters, there is a a loyalty and a, a showing up for each other that that didn't exist in my family that I really appreciate. Even if we don't have a depth of closeness, like I don't know a lot about your sisters, but I know they do anything for me and your parents. And that's, that's really meaningful to me. And, you know, when, 
when we got married, I changed my last name to something called Cadcodian, which <laughs> took me three months to figure out how to spell and say. And you seen I me still don't know how to grade. spell your name. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I really did become a Cadcodian, you know, and I really appreciate your family a lot. And I think I've, I've learned something and healed something because I don't feel so out there in the world by myself. And I know my mom's going to hear this and be really sad about that. And I hope mm-hmm. she isn't because I had to go through everything I had to go through to get to here. And my upbringing has made me an incredibly resilient, strong, independent person that I couldn't have become in any other way. And I know everyone did their best. Everyone woke up trying their best and it was exactly the way it was supposed to be. I I would agree with that. And, you know, one thing that I, I recognize and realize with your family, you know, which was such a huge culture shock was that, you know, that same theme that I was talking about earlier. And that is that if you want to do something, go ahead and do it. And nobody can tell you no. Right. And your family uh, talk about being unique and independent individuals, you know, meeting your brothers and they're seeing them with their long beards and motorcycles. And this was, it was like something out of a movie for me, you know, and if anything, it kind of gave that side of me that likes to rebel and, and do new things, experience new things. It, It kind of, fed that for me. One thing I would say about my family is they will show up for the really important stuff. My sister got married in Guatemala and she said, you know, we really want to have the wedding down there. Do you think anyone will come? I said, oh, they'll all be there. And they were. And they've been at weddings and they've been at the funerals and they, when there is something big going on in our family, we do merge back together and then go back our separate ways. I have siblings I see maybe once every few years. But if it's something big, they're going to be there, which is, that's cool. Mm-hmm. There seems a, where there is a lot of benefit on both sides since the diversity is there. Were there any hiccups? I mean, for, for, example, for example, between the time you guys met and the time you guys got married, it was like, how, how long? 51 Ooh. weeks. <laughs> so shy of a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. So in that year, considering it's such a culture shock, you have all this paradigm shifts in regards to relationship mm-hmm. and you get married in under a year. Right. That's so not traditional. So how did you guys know that that was the way to go? You know, one of the things that I think amplified our relationship is we sort of developed in a bubble. By May, we had both quit our jobs and Alec would go down to Florida for the summer for 10 weeks. This is something he did because I was working full time and going to school. And if he was with me, he'd be like at summer camp and then a babysitter. So he would go stay with his grandparents down there. And so we had the whole summer of frivolousness, just the two of us. And our families families weren't really that involved, right? One of the hiccups that I know is that raised dad's culture. It's dominated by what women think, like women control behind the scenes, right? And so he, he would 
try to get to me and be like, tell him to do this. And I'd be like, no. <laughs> and it would drive him nuts. And anytime he'd be like, try to get information from me about what's going on with him, I would block him every time. And I still do. And I think that that was hard for them. Also, it was interesting because sometimes they would come to me for things that were more of the American culture that they didn't know. Like someone in the family had died. They're like, how do you do a funeral? Things like that. So I think that that we had great boundaries and we kept ourselves in in something that nobody got to have an opinion about or a thought about. You know, one of the challenges that we ran into you know, in that very short period of time was, was more from my extended family on my dad's mm, side. Right, right, right. And, you know, they're, they were all very traditional, you know, from Iran and uh, the Iranian culture. We, we were met with a lot of resistance. In fact, I had asked two of my cousins, one after the other, in order, you know, to be a best man. And they both had said no. And the reasoning behind that was that I wasn't marrying an Iranian woman, which is very interesting because I'm only half Iranian. <laughs> I didn't even speak the language. And I, I just grew up in the American culture. So the expectations that they were placing on me were, came out of the blue. I never even expected that they had these thoughts and these opinions. And uh, apparently, I mean, years later, I found out that my, my aunts actually cornered my mother because they were very upset about me marrying someone who had a, had a child. And they were very shameful towards my mother about that. Interesting, considering that your father also chose non-Iranian. Exactly. And he was the oldest you know, wow. of them. Yeah. And he was also instrumental in bringing them to this country after the revolution started in Iran. And this is all stuff I've found out later, sure. you know, after the, the years, because my parents did a good job of just kind of keeping that from getting to us. And I, I, I give them a lot of credit in supporting us through that wedding, even though they were, you know, being exposed to all of this external pressure. Yeah, that's actually something to consider. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. yeah. I think too, in the hierarchical thing in your family, um, the older cousins should have had the first wedding and your one cousin's wedding was scheduled for April before we even got engaged. And then we got married in February before her wedding. And so I think that that was another, you know, and, and again, this is peripheral. And I remember Ray's mom taking me out for lunch. And saying, you know, don't take it personally. And I didn't because I knew they didn't really know me. It was all their own stuff. But she went through that herself with his siblings. And yeah, they did a great job because we only found out really in the last five years, the full drama, if we even know the full drama. We knew your cousins. And you know, your cousins, that's a big thing. You don't have brothers and you were raised with them. It, you were really close to them. Mm -hmm. And your one cousin the one you were the closest to a couple of years later did come back and, and apologize and made amends. So what was the impetus behind getting married so quickly? I mean, you're 25 now, right? Yeah, I was 20. Gene was 30, 31. Yeah. 25. What 31. was the impetus to get married so soon? I guess. 
You know, one of the things that uh, we, we got engaged in September of 97. And I think we had originally planned for our wedding to be a year later. And we moved it up to February 14th. Well, we moved it up to February, right, of 98. And one of the reasons was that, you know, we were already a family. We were already living, the three of us, Mm -hmm. you know, you, me, and Alec. And we were, I was taking them to school in the morning, and we were, you know, just like living that family life. You had the job without the title. Right. And we just felt like he should have that legal place in Alex's life because he was doing the he was doing the job. And waiting that one year to get married was very much like the traditional stereotype mm-hmm. formula thing, right? You you are engaged for a year and then you get married. Well, why? You know, for us it really didn't matter at that point. Yeah. Cuz you're already living it. Cuz we're already living it, right? Yeah, to call him my my boyfriend, my fiance. Yeah, to in, in especially in relationship to who Alec was to him. It, it just didn't fit. So did you guys have like a formal engagement or it just happened? We're going to get married. Did you the decide? Proposal. The oh, proposal. The proposal, right. yeah. Was there a proposal? There was. Okay. Actually, there were two. By uh-huh. email? No. Email. Two proposals. <laughs> email didn't really exist back then. I think it was AOL or something, if anything. But <laughs> you got mail. <laughs> you got mail. There was two proposals, actually. And two? You guys are just setting the bar way too high. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I knew that I was going to propose to her. And so I took Alec down to the jewelry district in Chicago. And we went and we selected diamonds and the wedding band. And, you know, we did that together in in creating that. I really wanted to incorporate Alec in this decision. You know, I didn't want him to feel like this is happening without him and that he didn't have a say. And so actually her engagement ring reflects that. There, There are three diamonds on that engagement ring and that stood for the three of us together Mm. right and you know the center diamond is is the largest one and so there's like this combination you know of the three it's like synergy oh my gosh synergy (laughs) before synergy existed yeah there's two smaller ones and a bigger one yeah right and so you know in in being part of that i think alec really felt like he was uh, you know he was investing in it too I also went and I met with her parents and I actually formally asked them for her hand. I felt that that was, you know, just being traditional, it was the right thing to do. And then I didn't know when I was actually going to propose. You know, after I'd done all that, the ring had been shipped to my parents. My parents knew about it. And then just one day in September, I think it was September 9th or mm-hmm. something, right? Mm-hmm. So September 9th, I'm working at the hospital at this time. All my coworkers there, my colleagues, they knew that, you know, this proposal was going to be happening at some point, but I hadn't decided how I was going to do that. And that day, for whatever reason, she sends me a bouquet of flowers to the hospital, and she would do stuff like that from time to time, just 
like send me balloons and stuff. <laughs> like I'm just working and you know, it's just embarrassing. You're like bringing this on the unit and all like everyone's like, Oh, who'd you get that from? You know, like, Oh my gosh. And you know, guys getting flowers. I mean, this is the first time I've ever gotten flowers, you know, as a guy. So, you know, I'm bringing this, this bouquet up and everyone's like, Oh, look at it. And I'm like, I am, I'm going to propose to her tonight. And they're like, Oh my God. And so like that night, you know, we put Alec to bed and I was working. Right. You were working. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, this is like our downtime after Alec goes to bed. Yeah. I worked till probably nine or 10 o'clock at night. Right. That night. And one of the things that we would do for our downtime is we would put her oil lamps on <laughs> and then we would <laughs> listen, listen to music. music. <laughs> you know, we would just, we put on different albums or and mixtapes. Well, CDs at the time. <laughs> we would just, you know, sit there and just play music, after, you know, different bands and stuff like that. And in the midst of that, I, I proposed to you. Yeah. I remember we were like sitting on the floor, right? Yeah. So it's not like you got down on one knee. Right. And you had a letter you read to me, which I've been looking for. I don't know if we still have it, but you, you read me a letter and he had promised Alec that Alec was going to be part of this. So I did put the ring on, but I did that. I didn't look at it. I sat there like this the whole time. Then I gave it back to him because I really wanted Alec to be part of that. So that's why we had two proposals on September 11th. Ray's parents asked us if we wanted to live in a house that they owned uh, they didn't live there. And we went to see that house. And in the gazebo of that house, Alec and Ray both proposed. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. And then I looked at the ring. And then you <laughs> and looked then at you the ring, right. <laughs> Did you have any idea, Jean, that this was coming? It certainly was just very organic and natural. It wasn't shocking. You know, we knew we were headed in that direction. I don't really like surprises. I would not have appreciated something public or, you know, some of the things people do today. It was perfect. Yeah, no, it was just, it was just perfect. So and I guess together for year, how many years exactly that you guys been married? It'll be 22 on Valentine's Day. 22. While people are listening to this wow. and we're in Aruba. <laughs> well, if, if you're listening right now, then it's, it's 22 years tomorrow. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Perfect. So my question would be all these years, and I've only known you guys for over a year, a little bit over a year, and I see you guys and you are a perfect model of a relationship. Just always getting along so well together. And it seems like there's no conflict in your relationship, which is, (laughs) I know it's not, you know, there's issues. Right. How do you go about, you know, overcoming, you know, issues because busy gets, you know, life gets busy. You know, you have work, you have kids, you have family. One thing that I do see that you guys actually take time for yourselves. You guys don't just consume yourselves with work and family. How do you do that? It's very hard. You know, busy gets very busy. You know, life gets very busy. How do you do that? How do you manage to be able to take the time, you know, to go out for a date or vacations and things like that. You know, it's interesting the word issue. Because I think when a, a couple is starting, they have issues. They have issues. Every of, couple. Right. Yes. But the issues are like, 
who's going to balance the checkbook and who's going to do the laundry and who's going to whatever the life duties are. We, we don't really have issues anymore. What we have now is we are on a healing journey. And so now most of our work is about prior wounds and how are we, it's really, you know, that couple we interviewed the other day, they said, you know, they were very religious and they said, the two shall become one, right? That's in the Bible. And that's, I think, more where we're at now. It isn't just two people living life together and figuring out logistics or whatever. It's it's this merging in a way that I never thought I would ever do with any human being. And interestingly for me, the catalyst of that is is our dog, Jasmine. She is the first... Someone, I don't know what you would say. Living thing. thing. That has, that I bonded with. And it's not that I didn't bond with my kids, but I gave to my kids. She gives to me. And, and I never have had that so consistently. I can't leave the room without her following me. Mm-hmm. And I also, she comes to me with her needs and she taught me really how to love in that way. And it's only been really since the kids have moved out that we really turned up the intensity of our work together in becoming what we're becoming. I would say that our relationship has developed in stages, right? And I think that that is something that, and we, we both think that every couple has the potential to go through these different stages, right? In the beginning of a relationship, it is very easy it, there's very little investment, right? You can talk about conflicting opinions. You can differ on that. You can debate about it. And you can walk away from it and say that, you know, let's just agree to disagree. Because there's, there's very little risk at that point in the beginning of a relationship. But as a relationship develops, now the, the emotional investment the actual sometimes financial investment, it increases that risk. And so initially couples stop talking about those difficult topics because they don't want to hurt the other person or they don't want to cause any conflict. Okay. So they start censoring themselves. They start backing off from those, those difficult topics, especially topics that bring up past pain, past wounds. And the, the intention is good, but what it results in is more of a distance that is created between the couple. And that's the first challenge that couples need to face here, right? Is being able to lean into that, to push through it, and to face that conflict so that you can get out on the other side, which is more understanding, compassion, and starting to to help your partner heal from those past wounds that they are inevitably bringing into the relationship. And so we've gone through these stages. We've gone through these stages of our past wounds being brought to the surface, bring, being brought into the relationship. And yes, we have had multiple conflicts over the years because of it. And as our relationship becomes gets to more of a depth, the complexity of those past wounds, it it reveals itself even more. I think that, you know, in the beginning, 
it's it's two things with a distance. And if you think about a braid, you start braiding and there's it's a looser, not as connected type of braiding and kids are involved and you're busy. And, you know, in the very beginning, when you first start tethering together, that's so fun and exciting, mm-hmm. right? That's that's like, you know, fireworks and explosions and lovely, which we, I think ours lasted a very long time for, from what we know about relationships, a few years. And then it goes into this kind of this moving apart again. And, you know, because life gets busy, because you don't talk about the things you don't have time. You don't even understand what you're, what you're really feeling. And so this is a normal thing couples are going through all the time. And, and their intimacy really suffers from that. And that's, I think, where you, there's only so far you can get. You always say that a wedding band has a, an invisible bungee cord, right? And you can get so far away and then either it's going to break or you're coming back together. And where we are today there is no space in between anything in that braid anymore. It is so, so tight and so really perfect. And if it's not, so anyone who knits or crochets or does anything like that, that's knitting like that, we would unravel it and fix it before we would move on. And there's a, there's such an intensity of us to do that. And there is no, I personally can't tolerate not doing it. If anything's out of whack, it is coming up right now, even if it's not the best place to do it. Yeah, we, do, we don't sweep anything under the carpet. And we address issues, you know, feelings, issues, but feelings, you know, that come up, even if we don't understand it, we address it right away. And, you know, that's not something we, we did all the time. Mm-hmm. We kind of got to this place in our relationship where we do that. And I think our work has really helped us learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. We don't resolve conflict. We heal wounds at this stage in our relationship. And I like that. That's, that sounds awesome. (laughs) We don't take things very personally anymore. When one of us is having an emotional reaction to something and our emotional reactions are very intense at this stage of our lives for whatever reason, whether it's because we're getting older and softening or becoming more aware of things and and we have more self-awareness. We work a lot on ourselves as individuals in terms of our growth and in terms of our spiritual development and our relationship. So if one of us is hurting, even though we might blast the other person and sometimes pretty hard, we're pretty good at not taking that personally. Like, okay, so you lost it. Okay, now what do we, how do we fix this? How do we heal this? When he says things to me that are not nice or I say things to him that are not nice, I don't, I don't sit and be like, oh, you should apologize or whatever. It's like, okay, that happened. Now, like, that's not really how you feel. I know that. That's just your pain talk and that's your pain coming up. And I think that's been really helpful. So we are able to, we could be in a big fight and not even be talking. And sometimes we don't talk for a couple of days and sit in session and work with a couple and bring each other a cup of coffee. And it's hard, but we're able to like do that. And, and we know we need that space. Neither one of us is really able to resolve whatever until we've processed it within ourselves first and then bring it to our partner. Yeah. It's like this compartmentalization type of technique that we've been able to do where 
it's like, okay, you know, we've kind of worked on this or it's a little too intense right now. Let's kind of put this right now over here because there are things that we need to do. And then we are going to address it again. Right. And we've kind of figured out that flow that works out for us. And, you know, we are far from perfect, but we are constantly working on a relationship. I mean, just last week I lost my, you know, I lost it. <laughs> it's just because of snow. Because of snow on the driveway and my motorcycle fell trying to get to the snowblower and I just lost it. And, you know, the next day we were trying to, we're talking it out and trying to figure out, well, you know, where does that come from? And I'm trying to figure out myself and, you know, the feeling of being powerless or feeling of being restricted and limited in some way, you know, so it's, it's constantly, it's always going to be coming up. But if we just, if we don't address it and we don't talk about it and we tr don't try to figure it out, then we, we can't get to that next rung, that next level in the relationship. The other thing I think that is really powerful in our life right now is the more we are accepting of ourselves and the more we are loving each other, the more we're bringing that into the world. You know, I really, I used to not enjoy socializing at all. And Calvin, I think I've said this to you a lot, like, <laughs> I don't have friends, you know, you're one of my very few friends that, you know, I just didn't really feel, you know, and, you know, I grew up with, you were an island, right? And so I love that in our life right now, like, we know that we can go out and we meet people we we always sit at the bar and we always talk to people because we're just it's the two of us, you know. So we want to socialize with other people. And we always bring some type of healing component to that or some connection and some some uh meaningful love, I guess. And and it feels like that in the world now for me. And I know that you have a lot of, you know, someone said to us the other day, you guys are really good at connecting with people. And we weren't always that, that I think is a byproduct of our connection. Obviously you guys are role models, experts in the field in regards to relationships. And I think you exemplify the truth, which is you want to live joyfully. You want to live authentically and life is not perfect, right? It's the journey. My question to you, and I, I'm sure the audience is always thinking is like, if you're a relationship, if you, if you are the experts, and you guys have to have, have all this conflict with your relationship and you, it's an ongoing process. I think it's comforting to know that even the quote unquote experts have these challenges on a daily basis. That being said, I would ask that you give us your most challenging, you know, your most challenging episode or problem that you had to address and give us a concrete example of all your experience coming on, you know, bringing it to bear to fix this problem. Give us a, a really, I mean, a couple of your episodes ago said you guys almost got divorced because of you taking your doctorate on mm -hmm. uh, and whatnot. Give us, you know, the people who are listening to this, we're going through challenges. Everybody's going through challenges. We want to know what was the most significant challenge that you guys had and how did you overcome it? Just to give us some hope that there is a light in the end of the tunnel. So growing up, I learned a lot of very confusing things about sexuality. You were taught to be a virgin until you got married. You were also taught that it was like this sinful, bad thing 
that you should say for someone you love. And then you would watch in the world the way men treated women. You know, back in those days, my dad was a tool and die guy. And I remember walking through the shop and there were pictures of naked women everywhere. And, you know, I'm a little girl and it's very confusing. And you learn that your value comes from how sexually attractive men find you, but that you're a bad person if you're a sexual person. And so the culture changed over time. You know, when I was a little girl, uh, you couldn't have two people on TV that weren't married in the same bed. So you would see, like even Fred and Wilma had separate beds, Mm -hmm, all the way to, if you turn your TV on today, within a few minutes, you can probably watch people having sex on TV. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it was this huge shift that was a very difficult thing to resolve for me, first of all. Second of all, it became, you know, this learning how to have a sexual union with another human being and that being a sacred, powerful, deep, loving connection it's sort of like to me it's the equivalent of do you eat mcdonald's or do you eat very healthy and clean and and reap the benefits of that of having you know do you are you a couch potato that eats junk food and has diabetes and all sorts of other ailments or are you an olympic athlete and are you able to take this body and and create an amazing potential, which is a ton of hard work. And it requires so much just the depth of, of bond that we have and, and how we, well, we know ourselves and each other. There's no space anymore for what I would call a perversion, you know, like to look at another human being in that way, it feels it, it feels like something's getting in between us now where it wasn't always that way. No. And, th- and that evolved over a long period of time. But I would say that is a really big thing that we've had to figure out being in this world and being a couple and it's the overculture. It's everything and everywhere. And, and what I learned about sexuality was all external. It was never something that, you know, a primary caregiver took me aside and taught me what was correct and what was appropriate, what was, you know, inappropriate. And so I learned from peers, which is horrible, right? And at at what age did you start learning from your peers? Fifth grade, sixth grade, Mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 uh, the Catholic church and their imposition about what was correct sexually and what wasn't shameful shameful absolutely i remember fifth grade a a priest you know having the guys in the classroom telling us that you know masturbation was you know the devil and if you spill any seed that you were going to go to hell right and so that was like the shameful messages from you know the catholic church growing up and then you know on top of it I, i had zero messages from my parents you know, about sexuality. And so then the next messages that I'm getting are from peers and from you know, pornography at that time. At that time, it was magazines and things like that. But, you know, then, you know, what I'm learning about how a man and woman come together is power 
control and, you know, that there's this superficiality that's part of a normal sexual relationship between a man and a woman, which is completely false, right? And so, one of the biggest struggles that we went through was redefining that, redefining what we were taught from society, which was, you know, what was normal for society and what absolutely is appropriate for a healthy relationship between a man and a woman. And we've had many conflicts over the years because of that and having to redefine that. I was talking to a, a client the other day who he is part of the corporate world. And one of the things that ab- is normal in the corporate world is that he has to take the execs out to a strip club. That's something that's expected, right? Because it's all the good, good old boys club and, you know, this is what we do. And he is wrestling with that because he's, he's facing, he is in now a committed relationship. And how old is his daughter now? And his daughter is 18, and one of the things that he's wrestling with now is that in the past it was okay, but now all of a sudden he is starting to see these girls that he termed as having daddy issues, that they're the same age as his daughter. And then also that he's facing a, a being in a committed relationship and them having to go through this, this phase of trying to understand what is appropriate and what is inappropriate for their own sexual relationship. And he is finding that his head and his gut are in conflict, right? And that is a really great example of things that we, we've gone through is trying to figure out, you know, what is, what is right? What is true, you know, for our relationship and, and what is healthy? And, and I wouldn't want to say right or wrong. You know, for me, it's really about how I feel and I've, become very sensitive in working for 20 years in a depth soul level with other human beings that have been in pain that I don't want to be part of hurting people. And so I don't enjoy watching people get hurt. You know, I have a hard time with movies. I have a hard time watching people. Whether it's fantasy or not. Yeah, especially the kind of movies where the cops are bad guys, like they're shady. It just makes me feel like the world is yucky. And when when I get some distance from it, because periodically we do, you know, 40 days where we don't um, expose ourselves to any type of electronical things, you feel like the world's a really cool place and people are nice and good. And you look at people differently. And then when you see a movie, you start to look at people badly. I do. It, it feels bad. So it's not about judging people or morals or right or wrong. It's just how, how do I want to feel and how do I want to love in the world? And I don't think I can really open myself up to the type of love that we have and it not extend to other people and it to be involved in something that might potentially be hurtful. Yeah. I mean, to, to kind of further piggyback on that, I would say that, you know, over the course of our relationship in redefining what is healthy for us and, you know, in our sexual life, it has impacted, you know, a lot of what we expose ourselves to. Right. 
And, you know, I've, I've had to redefine my view on, on pornography. And, you know, for a lot of people and a lot of couples are able to justify that that is, it's okay within the relationship, but whatever they, however they define it, you know, for me, I've been able to see that as, you know, what you put into your head is going to affect the relationship that you're in and how you see your partner. And we've had to redefine what else that we expose ourselves to movies, Hollywood, things like that. You know, we, I used to watch the news all the time. We don't watch the news at all. We don't, there are specific types of movies that we are going to watch. And we are very careful as to what we're exposing ourselves to, because whether you can justify for us, whether you can justify in your head that it is fantasy or, you know, whatever, it still impacts you and impacts you emotionally. And then, how does that impact the connection that we have? You know, and I think in our work as well, we've seen probably the greatest pain a couple is going through is when someone, typically the man has porn addiction and it has stopped him from having any type of physical intimacy with his partner. So it gets in the way. It's it, There is a direct correlation of something that happens and so when, when you're understanding it at that level with other people, it brings up your own questions of things. And it's so heartbreaking to see a couple who love each other. And that's such a big issue for them. It's really heartbreaking, especially to watch the guy be in that much pain. And, and so we have had many conflicts over the years. And this is a very, unfortunately, I have to say it's a very common thing that we run into and seeing couples struggle with this, you know, and now with, you know, the accessibility of social media and just how much we are exposed, you know, on a constant basis, it is becoming more and more of a, a difficult trend that couples are, are wrestling with. And we're no exception to that. And, you know, the other thing that we've seen is our young people, you know, our son is 21 and when he was dating, he's like, nobody wants a relationship. They just want to hook up. They don't want to connect in their hearts. And it's really impacting us as a society. And I think before they ever even understand what their heart is saying, they've already been overexposed. I want to say 26% of six-year-olds accidentally see porn. That's, that's a pretty big number. It impacts us. That's a trauma. I don't know about you out there listening to this, but Gene and Ray are the real deal. Uh, they've been there for me when I've needed them the most. And their heart is in the right place. I believe in you guys. I believe in the work you're doing. Ultimately, your relationship is an expression of what you've been put on this planet, this earth to do. If you could have your way, what would you want to be your life's work to serve the rest of society, you know, us as a people? Why are you guys here? What is this? What is your purpose here for us? How can you elevate relationships? Because on a, on a very basic practical level, marriage is such a emotional, financial kind of component for our lives. 
Nobody guides us. I, I think that's one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that Ray and I are able to guide each other because you can't see it as an individual person. You need that reflection and you need that feedback. And one thing that we tell everybody we work with, and, and I would say this is our life's work, is that we want each individual to become whole and healthy people. The most difficult thing that we will ever have to do in our entire lives is have a committed relationship with another human being. And there is no rule book for that. And there, there aren't any people that are teaching it. And our goal never is for the relationship to stay together at all costs, right? Because every relationship ends. We just don't know when or how, but there are such huge lessons in every relationship that we have. Everything that's alive, whether it's an individual person or a relationship, is either growing or it's dying. And you can see over the years, we've grown as a culture from my grandparents' era when, you know, the women stayed home with kids and the men went to work and they worked their jobs for 40 years and they didn't care. They didn't have the luxury of caring about being happy or fulfilled. They put food on the table. They did what they were supposed to do. And now we're in this heart-centered place where Sometimes men stay home with their kids. Sometimes they're in daycare, all these different decisions that there's no more of this survival rule book. And because of that, there's this responsibility to feel your feelings and to let your life have purpose and meaning and be guided by what's important to you. And it makes life that much harder. And I think that's why we're screwing it up so much more. (laughs) I think the biggest travesty is going through life in a fog yeah. and just living life like a robot and trying to live up to some type of programming that was put into you by other people who don't, who, who don't have it down. And if there's anything that we want people to learn and the, the thing that drives us is for people to live their lives and and be happy and to be fulfilled and follow their heart and to follow their heart and to connect with another human being in a place that they never even knew was possible because is isn't that isn't that worth it you know to live life like that versus living for the next thing and the next obligation and feeling buried by life you know we were watching that documentary on the apollo mission control place. And one of the men who was a part of that, he said, you know, I was in history at the right place and the right time. And I was part of watching human beings create this amazing thing of space travel. And he's in his seventies about now. And he said, and if I had to do it again, I wouldn't have done it because it destroyed my kids and my wife. And in the end, that's what matters is our relationships. Ray and Jean, I would like to know, what is that your partner does that you know that they love you? 
One of the things that, that Gene always does for me is she always wants to have morning love. This is her thing, morning love, right? Just this, this cuddle time to start off the day, you know, before we just start running with life and, and, and everything that we're trying to accomplish. It's that connection first thing in the morning. And she always, we take turns bringing coffee, you know, toward, you know, for each other. And, you know, that is this, this, this pattern. I never grew up doing that, but that's something that she always did. But now that's another thing that she does for me and bringing me a cup of coffee. But one of the biggest things that she always does for me that lets me know that she loves me is that she encourages me to be the person that I am. And that if I have a desire or if I have a dream or if I have an urge to experience something or do something that she is behind me 100% in supporting me in that. When I was a girl and I was hurting, I had a little, a little fort in the crawl space of our house. And it would probably be like a 30 foot crawl back into the corner where I had, you know, some books and some things to write with. And as a little girl, I would, I'd have to stand on the laundry cart and jump up into the crawl space and crawl back there. And, you know, I'm a Scorpio. And so when I get hurt, I run and I run and hide. And Ray always finds me and doesn't let me stay alone. Calvin and Veronica, thank you so much for putting us on the hot seat today. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> you know, this podcast changes people who do it. And it's such a healing tool, both for the people doing it and the people listening. And we know that we've been sharing stories for thousands of years to bond and to heal and to grow. And we hope that by you guys hearing our story, it's enriched your lives. And it certainly has enriched our lives and Calvin and Veronica's lives. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. And now we have Joyce. And if anybody who has been listening to us, they know that Joyce has been a guest on podcast episode 40. Oh, episode 40. Episode 40. Yeah. Right. And she is also my mother-in-law. And my mom. And your mother. <laughs> and so, Joyce, you have, uh, I, I think, a few questions for us. I do. And I'm anxious to hear your answers. We're anxious, too. <laughs> <laughs> my first question, what do you do to separate your work from your private life? That is a really great question. Because given what we do, our private life, our work life, and our vocation are all intermingled. And so it does get very difficult as far as being able to separate all of that. I would say that it's sort of like if you pray or meditate, and when you first start, you have a lot of thoughts in your head. 
And when we get done working, we have a lot of thoughts and we do a lot of talking about work on the drive home. And then we get home and then at some point we've sort of processed out the day and then we move into personal time. And we're really careful about not letting personal time bleed into work life, but work life definitely bleeds into personal time. Would you say? I I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. I think it was a lot more difficult when we had kids. And so shifting from one channel or frequency to another was a lot more difficult, right? And there was a lot more blending at that time. And, you know, I think this is a really great question for a lot of couples out there who maybe are are not entrepreneurs, but like, how do you take one hat off and then put another hat on and, you know, and, and how to separate the two? Because it is absolutely important, you know, for couples to be able to switch gears and to be able to know when is couple time, when is family time, and when is also personal time, right? And a lot of times when we're dealing with couples and, and we're talking to them, they'll say, well, you know, we went out with the family and we went to dinner and they consider that couple time. Well, it really isn't, you know, that's family time. Or if you go out for a couple of time and talk about logistics and family and that kind of stuff as well. Right. You know, when we vacation, that's kind of the best time because we do come up with lots of ideas about our company, companies, but it's not so much about the people we work with. It's more about growth and creative ideas and things like that. So there is a lot of blending, but there's a lot of separation too. Well, that leads me to my next question is how often do you go on a date together? Every day. <laughs> no, no, not every day. Not every day. But a special date. A, a special date. So, so we're going to have to qualify what special means, right? If you're talking about special date, meaning like, you know, we get dressed up and we go out and we, you know, make a night out of the town, I would say probably a couple times a month would be a special date. As far as, you know, quality time as a couple and date night, as most couples term date night to be, I would say probably once a week, if not once to twice a week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Really important. I'm so proud of you too. <laughs> <laughs> so do either of you seek counsel? Alone or together, now that you do it every day, do you do it for yourselves? I think we counsel each other. We do have coaches that are helping us on the business, but I don't think there's people out there that could really help us understand the depth of work that we do. I don't think people out there know that more than we do. Don't get us wrong. There was a time when we sought out personal counseling Mm -hmm. on a consistent Mm -hmm. basis. And each of us saw counselors, even when we started the business and through uh, a period of time, a long period of time when we were running the business together. So we did seek out personal counseling and we find that to be extremely important. 
we just got to a point in our lives and in our business that we are now being able to be that that source for each other. I think when you were working at the hospital and going to school, we had the greatest disconnection in our in our lives. And I think that's when we both, you know, we were both seeing therapists, but we weren't doing joint work. Right. Right. We never, we never did that, but. And our lives were very different at that point. And so we needed that outside perspective Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to help guide us in, in what we were dealing with. And I certainly wouldn't be shy if we got into a place where we were stuck again to go and talk that out with someone. I think it's a really difficult thing to have perspective about your own life. And we need that type of reflection in our lives. So we're obviously very pro doing that. So when you have a decision to make and you are not in agreement, how do you come to that point? I just, uh, I just win every time. <laughs> uh, that may be true. I may, I may no, allow her not true at allow all. her to win. Not yeah, true at no. all. <laughs> no, no. I, I think so we how- we just kind of we just continue to just address it over and over and over again until we get to a point where we find that middle ground. And when I say middle ground, I mean, that's very subjective because maybe middle ground means that, you know, one person is conceding, you know, more than the other, but it's not conceding in a, in a, in a way that the other person feels defeated, right? It's not a competition, but that we are discussing things to the point that we are understanding the other person's position and finding a place of compassion and understanding of the other person's position so that we can be able to help each other's needs be met. You know, if you think about a word like synergy, synergy means that when, when the parts come together, the together is greater than the parts separately. And Usually when we are disagreeing about something, it's a lot of ego that gets in the way. And it's it's not that either one of us has the best idea. It's that we need more information. And it's why we've started hiring people to help us think through some things that maybe that's their wheelhouse. You know, we're not marketing people. We're not website people. There's a lot of decisions we have to make about the business. It's mostly the business, I think. Personally, we agree on most things in terms of our lifestyle and what we want to be doing. But it's usually business decisions that one of us will feel really strongly about something and the other one will feel very strongly. And probably neither one of us is right. <laughs> right? And then we need someone that has that expertise. Like that's their wheelhouse to come in and be the tiebreaker. You know, that tiebreaking is such an important thing. And I think, I think that's what our work does for some people. Right? And it, and it, teaches us things and we learn then that we are both of our ideas are probably good but the third idea is better there's wisdom in in many right right so when you have an argument do you use any type of tools 
Like a hammer? Or <laughs> like a hammer? <laughs> or a drill? Do you slam doors? Or a drill. <laughs> Do you slam doors? <laughs> or is one of you more verbal and another one do you shut down when you're having an argument or is it an all-out fight all of the above yeah all (laughs) of the above i mean there are times that maybe one of us is going to be more verbal than the other It, it really depends on who is it that is having you know more of the issue at the time and most of the time when we're having an argument, it has nothing to do with the other person. It it has to do, we've gotten to a point in our lives that the arguments that we have are bringing up really old and deep, deep, you know, wounds from the past that we didn't, we, we were not aware of and they come to the surface. And so, You know, when one person is being activated, they're the ones that are going to be much more in the spotlight on the stage. And so, yeah, it it is going to be (laughs) loud and, and, you know, doors get slammed and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, sometimes techniques work and sometimes they don't. We always fight from our hindbrain, which is our reptilian brain, that very reactive part of us. And so, when you're in that place, you're not very logical. You're not going to apply techniques. All healthy couples and unhealthy couples all fight the same way. They say things they don't mean. They call names. They throw things because they're just in pain and they're trying to feel better. And we do a really good job of not taking that personally after the fact, right? We're We're both that way. We both are reactive. And then one of us is usually more reactive at any given moment than the other person because you've been triggered more than the other person. And the person who isn't being triggered is doing the work of trying to reach out and resolve things. But when we fight that hard, I would say it lasts a few days, a few days of, you know, the volatile time in the beginning, and then we don't talk for a bit, maybe put some distance between us. And then the person, one of us, you know, reaches out across the bridge and and then we resolve it. I think one of the things is that we're privy to the research. And, you know, there was a research study with 2,000 couples and, you know, the difference between healthy couples and unhealthy couples in the way they fight. And they were trying to determine a difference between the two. And they found that there really was no difference that unhealthy and healthy couples fight in the same way that they say mean things that they slam doors that they you know they call they, they call names and they are very regretful about what they did in in the fighting the only difference in the study that was shown was that healthy couples came back and made repair attempts that they tried to apologize for what they did. They took responsibility for their part in the, in the, uh, in the fighting. And, you know, it was that, that was the most, the biggest difference. And, you know, that is something that we have are, are really good at as far as making those repair attempts and, you know, easing those tensions very quickly. You know, those, those moments are the best opportunity to heal those 
wounds. And so we're not just good at repairing, but we're good at processing it and, and, and fully healing something that can finally be laid to rest. Who would be the first to say, I'm sorry? That's a good question. Me. You would say that? Really? No. <laughs> I, I think, I think it, both. I think. No, I think it goes back and forth. Yeah. Depending, depending on who's hurting more. Yeah. You know, there there are points in time where just the tension is too much for me. And so I'm the one that's going to come in and, you know, break the ice and, and try to ease the tensions. And then there are times that you would do that. And I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure if I can actually identify the difference between when you would actually break the ice versus when I would break the ice. I, I think for me, and, and this is probably really important, is I will apologize when I have a really good understanding that I've really hurt him and he, he wasn't the one that hurt me. You know, he might have activated something in me and then I retaliate and hurt him, which I usually do by running away or rejection, right? Would you say? Mm-hmm. And, and then it's so painful to you that I that I can finally have empathy for your pain that I'll, I will come and apologize. And I think the opposite is true. So I really think it's more of a, like a dance. Would you say? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say that. Yeah. How do you show each other that you love each other? We've been asked this question a few times and, you know, and we ask this question. We do ask this question all the time. And I'm going to answer it just a little bit differently because, Normally, I would say it's part of the resolution of our fighting that, you know, he comes and finds me and, you know, doesn't let me stay away. But, you know, it's kind of cool. We have this weird way of being where we just get stuff done. And he never says, like, I'm not doing the dishes or I'm not taking out the garbage or I'm not doing this or I'm not like like we just get it done. And we both do things. And if it gets a little out of balance, one of us will you know, say something, but we're, we're constantly thoughtful of each other, you know, and I feel that from you a lot, that thoughtfulness and that, you know, there's no way one of us is having a cup of coffee without both of us having a cup of coffee. Does that make sense? That's, that's really sweet. Mm -hmm. So I think with you working with so many people with so many different issues and problems that you have learned so much that you can apply to your lives and also help more people. Mm-hmm. We, so we absolutely, so we absolutely learn from every single couple that we work with and that we meet with. And you know, we've said this before in, in multiple podcasts, and that is that the relationship work isn't something that is taught in a book. And everything that we have learned is, are things that we have learned in, in working with thousands of couples for nearly 20 years. And from one relationship to the other, each one being very much a, their own unique fingerprint. And understanding the different dynamics of each relationship and, and in seeing how they work and how they don't work, 
we have been able to understand our own relationship and what works for us. Yeah, we've learned a lot through our own relationship as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So my final question is, do you pray together and for each other? We have a meditation room in our home. And it has things in it that are meaningful to us. And through the years, we've been at different places at different times in our spirituality and in our connection to something bigger than ourselves. And I think we've, we've both been on both solo journeys and more recently on a journey together as a couple where those things have become more meaningful to us and as a couple, like as individual people, I think we both had that, but as a couple, right? And so, yes, you know, and, you know, for me, I don't, I don't, I start out with praying for, for us and our children and my extended family and my clients and the world. You know, it ends up being, you know, like a pyramid type of effect kind of thing. But I'm so least, you cover all the bases. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's all there is, right? It's people. Right. It's people. You know, and and any human being that's hurting hurts other people. And so if we can all feel better, then we'll all be better and we won't hurt each other. You know, one of the factors of success in a relationship between a couple is a common spirituality. And that is something that has been a growth process for us as well throughout our relationship. And, you know, regardless of what religion you believe in, the spirituality journey that we have been on we have gotten to a place where we are aligned and it's in that alignment that guides us and, and really helps us be present and truly helps us understand what our purpose and meaning is in this world. That's wonderful. That unity. And then you bring that unity in your work in everything in your life. So I am so proud of both of you and the work that you are doing. Just keep it up. You know, one thing that I want to say that I was going to add to our podcast of Calvin and Veronica that uh, interviewed us for the big portion of this podcast. And that is that, you know, a lot of times I talk about dad, but I don't talk about you very much. And I remember that there was a time in my life when I saw your life and I thought, I don't want what you have. I don't want to be a wife that is subservient, that is quiet and in the corner, you know. And I've just recently learned that I'm more like you than I've ever been because you have a big heart and you reach out to people and you love people and you care, and you pay attention, and I, I don't know why, and I think, I think it has a lot to do with Ray, 
that he's helped my heart open and, and really trust people not to hurt me. And so that's extending out into the world and that I, I can see the influence that you've had on my life and how it's, it's been like a seed that's been sitting dormant for like 50 years <laughs> that is starting to unfold, you know, that's and it's, beautiful. yeah, and it's, it is. And I think you don't get enough credit for that, for the, the amount of attention you pay to the world and other people and care about them in a time, especially when people are pretty, you know, they're pretty locked in their own little worlds. And it's, it's been really amazing. And we go places now and we make friends everywhere. And we, I enjoy it. I used to not enjoy it. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to hear the problems. And now it's like, so wonderful to go and we know so many people in so many different places and and I just really recently realized that that's that was your influence on me to be that that's great (laughs) I have one question for you yes so I want you to think back 23 years ago when you might have first met Ray and the first year of our relationship, what did you think? Well, I thought he was a pretty handsome guy. <laughs> I, I was surprised at first, but he was always so friendly and outgoing that he just kind of fit right in. I've always accepted him and loved him, and I see all his values and his gifts and how he's using them. I'm thankful for all my children and for all their mates and what they bring in my life for the variety and the different cultures. And I just feel so blessed. I'm so happy to have both of you in my life. We're happier in our life, too. Love you. Love you. All right. Thank you, Joyce, again, for being on our podcast. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> and thank you so much for the questions that you came up with. They were really wonderful. And I think they're going to be very helpful for, you know, all the people out there, all of our listeners who want to know more about our story. And yeah. we're just real people living a real life. Mm-hmm. And you have so much to share. Yep. So I think it's a great idea that you're doing this. Thank you. Thank you. And now we have Angela Zender, host of Butterflies in My Stomach podcast, and also our daughter-in-law. And employee. And also she is a (laughs) counselor, virtual counselor at the Lighthouse Emotional Wellness Center. Welcome, Angela. Thank you. I'm very happy to be a part of this episode. I'm happy to be celebrating your anniversary and Valentine's Day. Yay. Yay. Thanks for being here. And while this podcast is out, we are actually in Aruba. On a beach in Aruba. (laughs) (laughs) So Angie, what question do you have for us? All right. So first off, do you both believe in the phrase, you know when you know? You want to yes. take this? Yes, we absolutely do. Yes, let's let's 
elaborate, shall we? Okay. Everyone that has had a sustainable relationship says this. And if you're listening to the podcast, you hear it. And the people who also knew that they shouldn't marry someone, they knew that too, which is interesting. And even though Ray and I didn't start dating for a couple of months after we met, we both, when we, we each saw each other at different times. So he, he saw me before I saw him or whatever, but it, we, it, there was an instant like, oh, there's a person that, you know, that feeling was in instantly for me. I would kind of elaborate more about the gut feeling. Right. So we have this gut feeling inside. And if we're able to listen to it, we are going to be a hundred percent correct on all of the decisions that we make. Now, the caveat here over time, you know, from growing up, from being a kid, we learn to actually disconnect from that, that voice. So our gut is always going to tell us what is right. Our head is going to tell us something else. It might talk us out of something. It might give justification. It might get caught up with outside influences, filters, what, filters, what mm-hmm. other people tell us we should do. Right. But ultimately, that gut feeling will always tell us what is right. It will always tell us what is wrong. Okay. So immediately when you meet someone that you connect with, yes, your gut is telling you this is the person, but our head could talk us out of it, okay? Or likewise, your gut can tell you that this is wrong, this is the wrong person for me, but your gut will talk you into it, you know, and talk you into a very dysfunctional relationship and keep you in that dysfunctional relationship. Like the gazelle doesn't do that. The gazelle, the gazelle does not look across the Serengeti and go, hmm, I wonder if that lion's a nice one. <laughs> It just ah. runs away. You know, it just knows this this other animal means it harm or whatever. And so, yeah, that gut feeling is is because of our domestication, because we have words, we can lie to ourselves. And to answer a question that you might have in the back of your head, yes, I knew when I first saw Jean. Oh. But she doesn't remember seeing me the first time. <laughs> this is the thing. This is the, right? I saw Jean when I interviewed at the community mental health center that we both worked at. So during my interview, I was, I was standing there with my soon to be boss and I saw her walk down the hall and instantly I had this feeling. I had that. I've never had that feeling before. Just like in my gut, like, Oh, this is, she's great. And she's did, the did I see you? I don't. Uh, yeah, I think because we entered, uh, I, we were introduced. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm very focused a lot. And so things don't always register. But yeah, I remember. My dear. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. So the next question is, I know both of you met at a time when Jean, you already had a child and Ray, you did not. So, can you remember any anxiety you might have felt starting to date someone who didn't have a child and you had to introduce yours and Ray on your side dating someone with a child? So, for the first couple of months, we met in October, we didn't start dating until February. And after work, 
we would stay and talk. And often I was just telling him about my life and I just bought a condo and I got my first saltwater tank and I would talk about Alec. And at that point, he never hit on me. So I just assumed he was in the friends category. And then I had never really introduced guys to Alec. And he left a message that he wanted to come and check out my fish tank. And my guard was kind of lowered because it wasn't in my mind, like it wasn't a date or anything. We were just friends and he was going to, we were going to hang out and he kind of snuck in under the radar. (laughs) So I didn't really think about it. I'm smooth. (laughs) And Alec actually answered the door and was very cute with him when, when he came over. So you didn't really have any concerns right off the bat because you thought we were just friends. Yeah. Oh, okay. Till you kiss me. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, on the other hand, knew why I was coming over because I was interested in her. And the thoughts that were going through my head were ones of like conflict, you know, conflict between like what is supposed to be versus what you feel. Mm. Right. Like, you know, this is something of an unconventional type of relationship and that I would be entering into something that was not, you know, just casual. You know, it's something that has to be taken seriously right off the bat because there's a child involved. We actually broke up twice because of it. Mm. So he would come over during the week and then he would go out with his friends on the weekend. Which, of course, I didn't because I had a kid. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm not Monday girl. This is not working for me. And I broke up with him for like a day, I think. <laughs> you figured it out. But then a month later, you broke I'm up with me. I'm a quick learner. But then you broke up with me like a month later. And you said you didn't want an instant family. Right. That just points at the internal conflict that was going on because at the time you have to consider I'm, I was also 24 at age 24, having to consider being in, in an instant family, as I termed it, that's pretty serious, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not something that you can just take lightly. And then it influenced us because we got engaged in September. So we started dating in February and we were going to wait a year and a half to get married because we wanted to get married in February, which is when we met. And we bumped it off another year. And so we got engaged in September and married a couple months later because he was already doing the job. Okay. Well, my third question for you two that are being so open and honest is, as you've been in a long-term committed relationship, and I'm sure both of you have grown individually and together, What is it about your partner? What quality do they have that you found you needed in order to become the person you are today? I'll take that right off the bat. Jean is the kind of person that tells you to go for it and will always support you in anything that you want to do. So that was something that was very important for me because growing up, I always was faced with the word no. So if I wanted to do something, if I wanted to experience something, it was always met with resistance. 
you know, and so I always felt restricted in my life. And, you know, Gene was very surprisingly the, the kind of first person in my life to be like, well, sure, why not? You know, and that was, that has continued throughout our entire marriage. So anytime that I want to spend a lot of money, I just say, hey, Gene, while we do this, she said, why not? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you've never seen that, Ange. (laughs) Oh, I have. (laughs) So this is a little bit emotional for me because the men that I knew before I met Ray, and this includes siblings and my dad and neighborhood, you know, my friends' dads, they were all very... Not, not kind people and certainly not kind to women. And Ray is a very safe person. And even though we've been together for 23 years, I still struggle with trusting him just because of growing up that way and always thinking that, you know, guys are always going to cheat on you or lie to you or not consider you. And, and that's a really painful thing for me. And because I was a single mom for a long time and I learned to be an adult as a single person, I didn't have to work on that. And when Ray came into my life, I have to, I'm a runner. And so when I get hurt, I run, I run away, you know, and, and I have to figure out how to come back. And I've recently ran away as recent as um, maybe last week. So it's a hard thing for me. And it used to take me a couple of days. Now it takes me probably by the next morning, I'm able to, to come back. So he's really kind and safe and thoughtful. And he he's careful with me. Oh, well, that's lovely. <laughs> and I'm so happy that I got to ask you a few questions. We and want to thank you, Angela, so much for, you know, helping us expose ourselves more to the general public. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, we didn't have any daughters by birth, but you've been our daughter for 10 years and it's very lovely. It it's awesome. A very different experience than having sons. And I'm just really glad you're in our lives. Well, I am happy to be in your lives and I feel so grateful as in every night before I go to bed, especially if I have any stressful thoughts on my mind, I breathe and I start naming all the things that I'm grateful for. And it starts with my husband and our puppy and the bed we're sleeping on and to be able to afford our apartment. And then it quickly and so quickly goes to our loved ones. And it goes to my moms, and I name multiple moms, and Jean being one of them, and then my dads, and I name multiple dads, and Ray being one of them. So I do love you both, and I'm very happy to be near you and see your relationship because it's such a model and a place that I'd like to get to. Thank you so much, Angie. We love you too. Love you. And so now we have Dinyar and Catherine. Welcome, Dinyar and Catherine. And, you know, some of you out there may know Dinyar is our son. Yes. Yes. And Dinyar and Catherine have been dating for how long now? 
Is it ten? Ten months, yeah. Yes. Just ten, about. Ten, ten months. months. Okay. And for our anniversary podcast, you guys are firing some questions at us. Yes. Yes. All right. Fire away. You guys got married on Valentine's Day, right? We did. Correct. Yes. So I wanted to know how you chose that specific date and if it has any sort of significance beyond just Valentine's Day. So we, our first date was February 21st. February 21st. That's the day we wanted to get married because 1997. Eight. We no. started dating. Well, he was born in 98. Wait. Yeah. Yeah, that would be something. That so would be correct. <laughs> so February. we got married. We started dating February 21st, 1997. And we got married February 14th, 1998, but we wanted to get married on the 21st. But the church was having a confirmation and it wasn't available. The church was booked. (laughs) So they moved us to Valentine's Day. It wasn't our choice. So they said Valentine's Day is open. We're like, well, I guess we're going to have to do that. huh? (laughs) And then the banquet hall, because it was Valentine's Day, had this really big discount. Yeah. So I don't know it's what crazy. weddings are today, but they're probably like a hundred dollars a plate. Or I guess something. nobody gets married on Valentine's yeah, Day or something. At back, least back then. Back then, so it was only like thirty dollars a plate. So it we made got a it good deal. very easy for us to pick out the wedding colors. <laughs> that was the red. <laughs> Those would have been our colors either way. Red and black. Because red was my favorite color. They would have always been our colors. Oh, so you were the one who was deciding the colors. I think we agreed on we, it. We both did. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's actually kind of interesting because it seemed like everything has pointed us in the direct direction as to what we do now in working with couples. Yeah, because we didn't work with couples back then. I don't know if you know this, Dean, but I always had a red room in every house I ever lived in. Like fire engine red. So like she wanted the kitchen like we painted the kitchen red, fire engine red, right? We had multiple kitchens that oh, were yeah. fire engine red. Yeah. Yep. So now my favorite color is more yellow and right. our whole house is yellow. <laughs> and no more red. The outside. The outside and the inside, right? Yeah. So yeah, when people are like, you were married on Valentine's Day, you work with couples in their relationships. It's like, oh my gosh, that's a little cheesy, right? <laughs> well... We we didn't choose it. No, it just happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I have a question. So about um, a question I, that ties into that. Have your question. <laughs> yeah. So when you are, you you two obviously you know are stating yourselves as a power couple. How do you interact socially with another person who's a friend of yours that when they talk about their relationship is not as passionate or little, I don't know, or hesitant or unsure. How do you respond to that? Like, So you're talking about in a social setting? Yes, yes. Well, first, I, I got to say about the power couple thing. We, we never started calling ourselves a power couple until we were on the Bill and Wendy show, a radio show in, in uh, Chicago that was uh, there was a couple. That was on Valentine's Day. It was on Valentine's Day. It was a couple, a couple, years, ago. A couple years ago. <laughs> we were on their on their show, and they introduced us as a power couple. 
So they, we just kind of went with that after that. So, and then you want to answer. That's where they, they got that. Yeah. We do, we don't deal with that because we're not being paid. So we're really careful about not working while we're socializing. And this is why we like to do activities when we socialize because, you know, we sit and listen to people's issues for a living. We don't really want to hear about their problems because it isn't fair. They're not asking us for help. They don't want help. They just want to talk about it. And it, it's bad on both sides. But what ends up happening ultimately is sometimes, I know for me, I get sort of passionate about talking about our work because it's everything of life. And then those people come and become our clients. <laughs> and that happens fairly regularly. And at that point, it's kind of like you can choose to be our friends or you can choose to be our client, but you can't be both. And a lot of people have chosen to be our clients instead of our friends. You know, in addition to that, there's like an ethical piece to it. You know, as a, if you're in a social situ- situation and people are, are trying to tell you, you know, their, their baggage and all of those deep wounds that they're carrying around, you, you can't just open up Pandora's box and then be like, well, okay, well, Good luck with that. I'll see you. <laughs> I'll see you next week. You know, it, it's it's kind of unethical to, you know, open someone up like that and then not be able to help them process that. Okay, so yeah, we've learned over the years really to, you know, put some boundaries around that and really just remain social in social settings and then be professional in professional settings. Yeah, because it hurts people, mm-hmm. and we've made that mistake early on. Where we cross some boundaries and yeah, it's not good. Yeah, typically when you're at weddings and people corner us and ask us about advice <laughs> for their relationship, it just doesn't work. Mm-mm. So kind of back to the topic of marriage weddings, actually. Did both of you separately or together have a specific moment that made you realize you wanted to be married, get married? Or was it kind of like a gradual realization? So when we started dating, Ray came over and sort of never left. It was pretty intense from the beginning. (laughs) And we actually got engaged in September after starting dating in February, the same year. And we were going to wait a year and a half to get married. But he was already doing the job of taking care of Alec. So we moved the date up and got married in February after being engaged in September and got married within a year of dating. And it just, it was just who we were and it was a symbol of what we already were. So, so to answer the question, we knew right away, really. And, you know, this is something actually Angie had asked us this question and that is that, oh, we, really? yeah, that the question about do, do you know right when you meet the person, right? And we do believe in that, that there is this gut feeling inside that tells us, you know, what is the right answer for all of us and what is the wrong answer for all, all of us, right? And we knew right away in the beginning that this relationship was completely different than anything we've ever been in before and that 
we, you know, it moved very fast because it just felt very natural. Going back into that, what was it like if you had to move the wedding date up and everything? I mean, I, I saw Alec and Angie's, <laughs> their wedding planning. <laughs> was that kind of different? Absolutely. So no one planned our wedding except for us. And I think that was the difference. And no one in your family had been married yet. And your parents didn't really have any sense or say in anything we did or chose. And well, they didn't know really about the, um, the American culture, mm -hmm. you know, as far as planning weddings. So they just kind of followed our lead on that. And we, we're pretty good at making decisions, you know, so we, we know what we want. We know what we don't want. And if we don't have a strong feeling about it, we don't really care that much about it. So we just pick whatever. So it, it seemed pretty effortless mm -hmm. in terms of making those big decisions. You know, I, I think that's what makes us a power couple. If we're going back to that, right. Is we make a lot of decisions really fast all the time. Like, for example, today we decided that for our anniversary, while everyone's listening to this podcast, we will be in Aruba. Yep. <laughs> and we made that decision in about, I don't know, two hours, three hours. Yeah, about that. Well, we made the decision that, you know, we've been working really hard. We need to go on, on a trip. Even our staff were asking us because we have all new staff. And they're like, do you guys ever go on vacation? We go on vacation all the time, but they're so new, they don't know that. Yeah. And and then we're like, all right, we got to go. And um, we're moving the business, you know, next week. And we will move the business into a temporary space and get on a plane and leave for five or six days. So I think that is speaks to how we make decisions as a couple. Mm -hmm. And we all our decisions are made either... You make it because it's your wheelhouse. I make it because it's my wheelhouse. We both trust each other mm -hmm. or we make it together and we usually agree on most things. And that's developed over a 23 year period mm -hmm. as far as finding that, you know, that flow and finding, you know, being able to accentuate each other's strengths and then also navigate around each other's limitations and not take each other's limitations personally. Well, oh, except you like to make fun of me for my limitations. Yeah, right. Well, humor is a very big part of relationships. <laughs> I, I think that the key thing that a lot of people are asking is people want to hear about your negative sides and how you work through them in a relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, are, is there a guideline you lay down? Is there a rule set you have for fighting? And, and how do you move past it? We have a 32-page step-by-step manual that we <laughs> follow, and uh, there is a rubric that is part of that. No, 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 no. Well, as you guys have seen, we do fight as a couple. You guys and have seen that? Really? They've <laughs> it, seen that? It is, it is something we're very public about, about... <laughs> Well, we try not, not to be not too public, public about our fighting, but sometimes we fighting. are public in our fighting. Dean, you might know this about me. I have a pretty low tolerance for b bullshit. And it's not a, it, it, you'll never guess at what I'm thinking or feeling. And so I emote pretty quickly and it escalates pretty quickly. And what we are really good at doing is once we get to at least separating, because 
there's usually a period of separation that happens for us after we go through the blow up part and we're even able to go into session even if we're not talking to each other and still work together we're able to give each other a cup of coffee and and be considerate during that part of our conflict before resolution would you say and all of our fighting is been very growth driven yeah it's very growth oriented yeah fighting is absolutely a part of every relationship and i tell all my clients that fighting is inevitable it is like a credit card bill the bill is always due the only two choices you have is whether you're paying it now or you're paying it later with interest so trying to push off a conflict is only going to result in a bigger conflict down the line. So we are absolutely aware that conflict is supposed to happen and is going to happen. It is an opportunity for growth in our relationship, and we learn every single time we have one. Now, with that said, going through it sucks. It absolutely sucks and it is painful. And, you know, there is, you know, tensions and, and all of that. But we have learned about each other's style as far as like our, our de-escalation style, I should say. I don't know if that's a good way to describe it, but you know, the, the time period that each of us need in order to cool down. And then we also know when to kind of draw the line and to separate because, you know, moving forward or keeping on with that conflict is not going to be any more productive. So that's, that's been a pattern that we have learned over a long period of time and working through that. I would also say we're not very preemptive or planned out. I think our fights are pretty reactive and we bump into something and we don't really sit on it. You know, we know people who find out their partner is lying to them in some way and they won't even mention it for a month. I I could never do that. Not that you, you don't lie to me, but I could never sit on something like that. I I just don't have it in me. (laughs) So is there something you guys do that keeps your relationship so strong and resilient and alive? Doing new things or experiencing new things in a relationship is like the mortar that holds bricks together. It is absolutely imperative for couples to constantly be evolving in their relationship and so if they continue to do the same things over and over and over again then they may enjoy those things but it doesn't add to growth in the relationship i would say we also are really good at investing a lot of time and energy into our relationship we're really good at creating new things together and we put a lot of effort toward having a common vision of our future and so whether we're in the same room or not, we're always sort of moving in the same direction and we know where each other is at in terms of those things, right? And so we are really good at also keeping people outside of our relationship, the parts of our relationship that are, you know, we, we, like bitching too much about it to other people or things like that, you know? And I think, too, one thing that's really important is affection. I asked 
I was, we were talking about this earlier, like how many times you have a dog, Catherine, how many times a day do you reach out and let your dog know that you love, is, is your dog a boy or a girl? No. How many times a day do you reach out and, and let her know you love her? Oh, like constantly if I'm home. Right. And we do too with Jasmine, but I don't tell him I love him as much as I tell Jasmine. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because I think because they don't speak, we feel that need. You know, there was a, a meme on Facebook. It was like, if you step on your husband's foot, you're like, oh, honey, I'm sorry. But if you step on your dog's foot, you're like, oh, baby, are you okay? I love you so much. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, like we emote more because they don't speak. And so I think. You know, those kind of touch points in a relationship are really important, whether it's affection or, you know, talking to each other or spending time together. Well, Dina and Catherine, thank you so much for peppering us with all of your questions. It has been very enlightening. And again, what I said to Angie was thank you so much for helping us expose ourselves to the general public in the world. Well, who better to expose you than your and your children. <laughs> right. Thanks, Thanks guys. Pretty much our job, right? <laughs> yes. For all of you listening out there in couple synergy land, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Go out and celebrate with your partner. And don't forget about morning love. <laughs> <laughs> our passion is in helping couples have happy and healthy relationships. And this podcast gives us a fun way of bringing our knowledge and expertise to you, our listeners. For all of you listening, please subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. And join us for the 22 Date Night Challenge, which you can find on our website, couplesynergy.com. So between now and six months from now, we are encouraging everyone to go on 22 dates and we are going to be putting up ideas of date nights and you can get more information from the website. For more information also about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, the Couples Weekend Intensive and our premier program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. And if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, Please download it and share it. And thank you for listening. Until next time, synergize your life and synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez. <laughs>